Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah yes, the magnificent Trolley Sourbright Crawler, also known as Trollicus brightolus. The worm's captivating neon colour makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolley! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. Visit trolley.com to shop now. Trolley, eat me! This is Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly slice of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Olive's food director and podcast host, and this is episode 195. This week, I'm chatting to author Regula Ezewin, who's written a fascinating new book which takes a reader on a tour of regional British bakes and looks at the history behind them. We chat about the process of creating the definitive recipe for each bake, as well as the quirky stories behind them, from classic biscuits like digestives to lesser-known breads such as the Stotty and the Cumbrian Clap Cake. So I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, all the way from Belgium, Regula Izouin, who's author of a brilliant new book, A History of British Baking, called Oats in the North, Wheat from the South. Um, Thank you very much for coming, Regula. I'm very delighted to be here. Thank you very much. And thanks for calling in from Belgium as well. This is our first international podcast, which Yay. is great. Um, how is it over there? Are you are you guys? I guess you're in lockdown too. Yes, we are also in lockdown, but the sun is out. The weather's been amazing. So it, it it's not that bad. I think it would feel very different if it would be raining and would be grey and cold. Of course, everyone wants to go out now and, and, and enjoy the weather as yeah. well. But I, I think, I mean, even if, it's, if the weather would be bad... Uh, it wouldn't be better. It wouldn't be better at all. It just lifts the spirits that the sun's coming in through the windows all day. Yeah. What what kind of things are you doing kind of 
you know, routine wise? Are you doing a lot of baking yes. on the back of the book? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm baking all day, every day, uh, working on a new book as well. So oh, really? I, yeah, so I'm very, I'm very busy. I'm very lucky to be busy. Uh, and my husband's here as well, because he's working from home as well okay. now. Uh, but the ground floor of our house is studio. So he has his oh. part, I have my part and we can go like, do you want a cup of tea? And uh, <laughs> we can hear each other, but we still have our own spot to be creative, which is fantastic. That is brilliant. Um, talking about the book, um, it's it's a real love letter to British bacon, isn't it? And obviously you're from Belgium. Um, and in the intro to the book, you say that from a very, very early age, you had a, a real fascination with British culture. I mean, where did that come from? So when I was still a very small child, I must have been five or six, I heard this skipping rope rhyme on the schoolyard. And it's not going to make sense in English, but in Flemish it rhymes. <laughs> and it goes... <laughs> Black swans, white swans, who's coming to England with us on the boats? But oh, the the key is broken. The key of England is broken. Is there a blacksmith in town who can mend the key for us? And it just, it, it I imagine this island, which had <laughs> like a giant gate around it, a big padlock, <laughs> and, and then a key which you needed to enter. And it was guarded by swans. And then the key was broken. And I mean, I had this, incredible imagination as a child. I've always been a romantic. So I just dreamt and dreamt about this amazing uh, fairy-like place. And while everyone was going on about going to Disneyland, which had just opened around okay. that time, I was asking my parents, can we go to England instead? <laughs> and they were like, what is she saying? And she's just a small child and they just ignored it for a while. But my mom and dad, they watched uh, BBC a lot as well. So there was a lot of um, documentaries, which you guys do very well on the yeah. BBC and, and also costume dramas, of course, yeah. a lot of Jane Austen, which kind of just, it fed my infatuation with this magical England. And then when I turned eight or nine, my parents, they gave me a city trip to Canterbury for my birthday. And we went on the ferry boat for the first time oh and seeing, you know, the white cliffs of Dover, coming closer and closer in that pink morning light as a ribbon on the horizon. That was just magical. And I, it sounds I, magical. Yeah, it was, it was just beautiful. And I was thinking as a child when, when, when we, when we uh, came off the ferry boat and stepped on English soil for the first time, I mm. said to my mum and dad, when I grow up, I'm going to live here. Wow. But sadly, I've never moved. Oh, and what, I mean, were you disappointed when you got there that it wasn't sort of like Jane Austen's backyard? I mean, it, it's, it must have been, what year was that when you first actually got to visit? Oh, I can't, I can't tell you which year it was. I, I was, um, I mean, yeah, what, I was what eight, decade, or, maybe? eight or nine. So it oh, really? was, uh, and I'm now 36. Okay. So it would have been in the... 1990... Okay. So quite different to the whole Jane Austen vibe in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was the 90s. But um, no, 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 uh, on the contrary. So my, my parents and I, we did, well, my parents, I didn't have anything mm. to say, but my parents decided that uh, from that time, 
we would start doing all of our family holidays and breaks in Britain. And wow. we started traveling around. Every yeah. holiday had a theme in the footsteps of King Arthur and finding um, William Wallace. Um, so so every every holiday had a cultural theme. And I was this perfect child for them because I never moaned when we went to, <laughs> you know, when we, when we went to museums also, yeah. and when, when we, you know, drove around for hours and walked around for hours searching for a stone circle. I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, and it just fed my infatuation with this magical England uh, and, and Britain. Uh, I love the fact well. that you went back and kind of found like the old England that is there if you look if you look for it, because obviously there's so much history and so much kind of architecture and stuff. And you, you went and sorted all out rather than going to, I don't know, Leicester Square, <laughs> shopping on Oxford Street, no. which is what a lot of people do when they get here. No, it's true. I actually, uh, my first visit to London was actually very late. We saw England, well, Britain first. Yeah. And, and my right. first visit to London, I think I was 16. So that yeah. was quite late. So I think I, 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 I saw Britain at its prettiest first yeah. and, and, and at its purest, visiting yeah. all these small village, villages. And, you know, we, we, we had this amazing uh, phenomena going on and people talked to, to us about that for years after that, that we managed to visit Britain on the couple of best summers that they've had. Oh. Okay. So we didn't we didn't ever have any, you know, rain or wind or, you know, we didn't have to sit in our car looking at what we were going to visit. Like yeah. you see so many people do when they drive up to some fantastic place, they'll just sit in the car and, and, and watch out of the window. We didn't have to do that. We have fantastic weather uh, all the time, which, which kind of just fed this perfect view of, I'm so glad perfect. that it lived up to yeah. I'm so glad it lived up to your expectations oh, and yes. it didn't disappoint you. When did when did the bacon side come into it? I mean, when did you because I know um for people that don't know, um Regular's author of a, a previous book about British puddings, that's correct, yes. isn't it? So you so you you're already correct. into the kind of historical food history. Um, mm -hmm. And you did the pudding book. When did you decide I'm going to do a baking book? Um, so when I was um, starting to research and write Pride and Pudding, the first yeah. book, um, I, I my intention was to write a big book with an overview of British cuisine. Okay. But I started at puddings and quickly realized this is going it's to big. be a book all about puddings. <laughs> Because it's such a... We love puddings. It's a, yeah, it's a beautiful, rich pudding culture that you have. So, you know, that, that turned into pride in pudding. And, um, you know, then the, the next step was cakes and bakes, the things Do that bakes. couldn't be called mm. pudding. Um, so so that, that, that just kind of flew naturally yeah. into Oats in the North Wheat from the South. Where does the title come from then? Is that because, I, I guess, it, in the simplest of ways, is that what the main constituents of the bakes are? Yeah, so um, I kept on explaining to people uh, what the book was going to be about. And the things I always said was, so you have to understand that for a baking culture to evolve, you need access to flour and butter and eggs and everything. But it's not as simple as that because in the north, 
wheat doesn't grow because the climate is much rougher, the summers are shorter, and oats grow perfectly there, which is yeah. why in the north of England and in Scotland there are so many bakes with oats, while in the south it's mostly wheat and all the bakes are much finer and much lighter. There's saffron okay. buns and, yeah. and all that. And and, mm. and and that has had an, an immense impact in how baking culture evolved in the different regions of Britain okay. because there's so many differences in climates and what you can grow there. And also there's so much import from the Caribbean uh, you know, treacle, sugar, but also fortified wines from Spain, yeah. dried uh, dried fruits. That also influenced uh, the baking culture as mm. well. So it's not just about, oh, let's go and bake something. It's yeah. what's available to bake with. Yeah, and how it kind of develops because of that as well. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Um, so each recipe, that, how many recipes are in the in the the book all together well I've never I should have counted before this I'm really sorry <laughs> me too I always mean to I always mean to just count them and then I forget to count them and then I count them and I and then and I kind of just lose my counts but there should be a hundred yeah there's a lot basically and yeah. each, each each recipe comes with like a potted history of the bake um at the beginning of the recipe so you end up earning learning so much about the bake as well um did you start with the historical research and then go into developing the recipes or did you do the both together or? Well, there are some bakes that I knew that had to be in there, just, you know, the traditional bakes. Yeah. So those ones were already on my list. Things like um, the hot cross buns and, and mm. Victoria sponge cake and, and, you know, the things that you immediately associate with, with British baking, short, yeah. shortbread, everything that was already there. Uh, and that was already a very long list. And um, and then the next step was just piling up all my books around me and starting from the beginning, from the oldest books and, wow. and just, you know, making notes of all the bakes that I, that, that, that I saw that were interesting and just comparing them when I picked up, picked up the next book looking through it, see, does the recipe or something that is similar, but because, you know, yeah. the, the names are different sometimes. And sometimes it's just called a very good cake or a very good biscuit. <laughs> so, but, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at the recipes and you know a bit about baking, you can see like, okay, what they're trying That's to explain similar, yeah. here is actually this or that. So yeah. I, I just work my way up from the oldest uh, books until um, the 1940s, uh, 50s, and, and just saw what happened to all the bakes. And, and, and also, interestingly, how some of the bakes evolved through time. There, mm -hmm. There's a couple of recipes in the book that have, uh, like there's two recipes for a, a, a bath bun, because okay. a bath bun uh, in the 18th century looks very different from, from the 19th century and in the 20th century. So I wanted to include both recipes so people can see how it changed mm -hmm. because 
you know, the preference in flavor, fashion, okay. it changes, which it has an influence on, on baking as well. So the recipes evolved. Belgian bun, same thing. Also very funny because I'm Belgian and we don't yeah. have any Belgian buns <laughs> in Belgium. So uh, that's very, uh, that's always very intriguing. Uh, and especially when my book came out in, in Belgium and in Holland, people were like, what is this Belgian bun what thing? Belgian we, bun? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's a very, very popular bun. You can see it in every bakery. There's a Belgian bun with this cute uh, red, red cherries in the so middle. So true. Yeah, and, and that looked very different at some point as well, as well. It looked more like a rock cake. So oh, right. it's very interesting to show people like, this is how it looked in the previous century mm. and this is how it evolved and why, um, like what we know and see today. Stick around for more stories behind the bakes from Regular. What other sources did you, I mean, did you um, get in contact with other food historians or kind of anecdotal um, evidence from people in various regions or anything? Or was it, did, you, did it mostly just come from your research books? No. So I also perused diaries from the period. So I've got a oh, couple really? of diaries uh, from 16th century, 17th century, 18th century. And um, I, I'll, I'll read those and uh, see if there's any mention of food. Uh, uh, so that helps a lot. Yeah. And I also perused the newspaper archive, um, looking for mentions of bakes. And, and see when the earliest mentions are of those bakes. So it, it takes a lot of time and, and, and effort. How long, did the, how long did the whole book take from, from like thinking about it to starting to research it to actually delivering it? It's hard to actually pinpoint it because I'm, I'm always working on different out. books. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was working on Pride and Pudding and already putting things aside oh, okay. for, for Oats yeah. in the North. <clears throat> Um, but the actual research for this book was about a year. Wow. Yeah. And, and you can tell because yeah. it's it's very, it, it's not as in, it's very definitive as in it tells you exactly where things or, or you know, you've got all the different sources in there. So it's really nice because it's not like each recipe hasn't got pages and pages and pages. So you're so bored by the time you come to the recipe, <laughs> but it's just, it's just got a nice little history of it. So you feel like you've got a nice entry point into it. Um, and then when you came to refine the recipes, were you kind of um, taking a few different recipes and then trying to find the common elements? And then that's where you got your recipe from? Yeah, exactly. So I would compare, I would have sheets with all the different recipes for one bake. Yeah. And I would just see like what are the the most common uses of 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 let's say do they use mostly currants or mostly raisins or they don't oh. or maybe they don't use raisins or currants at all uh, do they use more eggs or don't they use any eggs at all do they use cream uh, some some of the recipes can be so different that yeah, that say, it was yeah it was just a matter of looking at okay what appears the most and. Yeah. It's very, I think it's always dangerous to say this is a traditional recipe or this is an yeah. authentic recipe. Um, but I think if you look at uh, historical cookbooks and you see so many uh, recipes using the same methods, not mm. actually copying each other, because that happens a lot as well. There are a lot of historical cookbooks that were plagiarized. Um, but if you see them in different books and 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 
you can really tell like, okay, this appears to be the authentic recipe mm. for this bake because that's how most people have done this bake over the centuries. Mm. And then it becomes, I think, authentic and traditional. Yeah. yeah. And of course, you're always going to get that thing of with home bakes. I mean, we were just talking to our producer, Ben, weren't we, who's Welsh. And I was thinking about Welsh cakes and how a little simple recipe like that, one, one family will it'll use the same ingredients and the same method of cooking, but it might be slightly different in the the finished thing. It'll, yeah. it'll still be a Welsh cake, but of course it's going to be different because your granny is going to make it differently from my mother or whatever. Yeah. So, and that's just, that's just normal. That's definitely normal. Uh, funnily enough, today someone sent me a message on Instagram saying, like, I really love your book, but the Welsh cakes, you forgot, <laughs> you forgot the spices. My grandmother always used a lot of spices in the Welsh cakes. Yeah. And my uh, Mrs. Beaton uh, book also gives spices. And I, I said to him, like, well, you know, y- you can add the spices and that's yeah, totally fine. It's your family recipe uh, yeah. and it's delicious. But if you look at all the recipes that there are for Welsh cakes in the past, yeah. it usually doesn't use spices. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting. And that's what I think is interesting as well, because it's a humble bake. It's baked on the griddle. It's yeah. not a bake that's been made in, in the courts, in the castles. So it, it wouldn't have used the spices. And yeah. it, they would have started using it once spices became affordable. Mm. And that, yeah, that's just, it's just a great example of the sort of thing I remember my grandma making um she used to call them um, girdle girdle scones or griddle scones. It's yeah. the same kind of thing, you know. It's it's that thing of it was a it was an easy throw together recipe that you could cook on the hob. Uh, you didn't have to turn the oven on for. Mm. But everyone's are going to be slightly different. But the methods are essentially the same. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also um, in what you say, like what kind of research. Um, uh, uh, how did you do? Is I mm. went to Scotland because I wasn't. I wasn't convinced that grilled scones yeah. would uh, be sold as well as normal scones. So went to bakeries in Scotland and was amazed to see that in on the, on the bakery on the Isle of Skye, yeah. you could choose to have yeah. griddle <laughs> scones or plain scones or sultana scones. So yeah. there was an absolute difference between difference them. Between it, yeah. And it was considered two different bakes and not mm. as something that evolved from the other, which I thought was very interesting. So I actually went around and traveled and I traveled for years and years to actually gather all of the information for Pride and Pudding and for this book as well, uh, Oats in the North. And, and, and that is something I've been doing consciously for my books for 10 years gathering that information visiting yeah. bakeries so getting the like and kind of straight from the horse's mouth as we say exactly from pe- and from ask- people who are making it every day exactly yeah. and asking people like you know a, a beautiful old woman in the street and asking them like so what what do you make at home what is the kind of biscuit yeah. you'd make at home <laughs> what a kind of biscuit you would buy and that was in scotland and she said oh well, oat cakes I would never buy because uh, I would never bake myself because there's a bakery and I can, can choose between coarse good ones, or yeah. fine oat cakes yeah, yeah, or, yeah. you know, very dark oat cakes, lightly yeah. baked oat cakes. So, and I was like, wow, yeah, you have to <laughs> do field research as well and yeah. actually ask around. Uh, I think that's very valuable. Like for the Stotty cakes, for example, a friend of mine told yeah. me a story that she... Uh, 
has a friend and they had a very important visitor in the in the 1970s. Muhammad Ali actually visited her friend's mother's home. I know, home. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> just, tell, just for people who don't know, they've heard me going on about it before because I am actually from the Northeast. A stotty cake is, is not actually cake, it's, it's a bread. And it's a big kind of, how do you describe it? Like a giant flat bun kind of thing? Yeah, it's um, a, a very densely baked uh, flat bun. Yeah, and it's called stotty because we've got this word in Geordie, which is stot, stot, which means to throw. So the like one of the legends is that they were called stotties because you could you could stot them off the wall, <laughs> and they would bounce back because they were quite. I mean, they're not they're not hard. They're, it's just very very dense bread. Yeah. But yeah, I absolutely thrilled to find out that not only Muhammad Ali came to Newcastle in 1977, but that he had a giant stotty cake. Yeah, absolutely. He had a massive stotty cake and he also visited my friend's mother's home and had afternoon tea there, which is, I mean, it's just amazing to actually have someone in your friend's circle who can tell you a story like that. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of story you want for your book, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. And what she did was I, I, I baked different types of stotty cakes oh, okay. from, because a stotty cake uh, from one bakery looks different than the ones from yeah. another bakery or from Greg's. We are still selling them. So I, I baked different versions of stotty cakes and took pictures of them, very detailed pictures of them, and sent them to my friend Emma. And she showed her Gordy friends and yeah. said, like, so, so what do you feel is the authentic Stotty? Mm. And they chose one of the bakes and that's the one that went into the book. That, I, I mean, I saw it and I was like, yeah, that's a Stotty cake. Brilliant. <laughs> that's, so what I, that's my idea. The thing is, I really, I really wanted to bake it before we had our chat today, but um, I've been just unable to get any plain flour at the minute. So... Um, but it's coming back. So that's definitely on my list to bake. Um, One of the other things I found fascinating was just the little stories that come with the bakes. For example, uh, a really common thing, the digestive biscuit. Um, You say it was developed by Scottish doctors, which is insane. Like to have a biscuit developed by a doctor that's become one of the most well-loved biscuits in the UK. Yeah, and that's how many uh, sweet treats and and, and foods in general uh, come to be in this very strange and peculiar manner. Um, I mean, that's why it's called the digestive, because they thought, you know, that would be good for your digestive system. And it makes a lot of sense because there are a lot of uh, uh, grains in in a digestive and oats in a digestive. Mm. So it it is good for your digestive system, (laughs) but it is still a biscuit as well. Well, yeah. um, and you you have to understand that in the past sugar was medicinal, so that's oh really that's how it often became associated to some doctor developing this biscuit that would be good for something. Yeah, so I mean, as long as it gets the punters through the door, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> I was going to say, let's face it; these days with chocolate digestion. Digestive's probably been one of the most popular. <laughs> it's not really a health food. Another one which was actually, I was quite fascinated by, was, was carrot cake. Because for some reason, I guess because a lot of carrot cake has um, has oil as the fat, I thought it was a, a kind of American import. But in fact, um, it goes back beyond that. And it was promoted 
as a healthy cake during the Second World War by the Ministry of Food. So they were the ones saying, there's a load of carrots around, let's bake it in a cake. Super trendy. Yeah, absolutely. It was, you know, it was a bake for victory, basically. You know, use all the carrots that you have because uh, that's what Britain had a lot of. Mm. Little children were even given very big carrots on a stick so they could lick it like lollies. <laughs> really? Yeah. They're, they're, I can't really see that going down well. <laughs> there are some fantastic images of little toddlers sitting oh on, on, on the streets uh, just licking just giant carrots on a stick. It's it's adorable. But yeah, but it, it, it even goes back much further than that because in medieval period, there, it was very common to use mm. carrots in, in, in puddings uh, mostly but put those puddings evolved into cakes. Because if you think about it, in a, in a time when sugar was used very sparingly because it was very, very uh, expensive, things like carrots were sweet to people. Naturally sweet, yeah. While today, you know, if you eat so much sugar, you need more sugar to, yeah. to actually think it tastes sweet. But if you don't eat a lot of sugar, then a carrot to you tastes like a sweetie. yeah. And another kind of soup, talking about sweet cakes, there's a brilliant picture in there of Tottenham cake, which is, um, it's. I mean, I've seen it in bakeries around because I live in North London, quite near, not, not near enough to Tottenham, but um, huge slabs of this, um, like, you know, vanilla-y cake with this bright pink gaudy icing covered in shredded coconut or hundreds and thousands. And they, they just cut it up into squares and and sell it in bags and it was actually um invented to celebrate the 1901 FA Cup final I knew nothing about that I mean just stuff like that is brilliant yeah it was it was invented because they wanted to give uh, children a treat but it had to be cheap um and it had to look nice so they decided to make a very cheap cake which I tried to an original recipe and tasted hideous (laughs) What was in the original recipe? Well, it was basically taking away too many eggs and too much butter and too much sugar for it to actually taste nice. It was Mm. very rubbery texture-wise. So I decided to go with a later recipe because I don't want to put something in in the book which is not nice to eat. I want to tell people like... This was the recipe, which I say, you know, this is the the, the Kirkham recipe, but it was actually not very good. It made a five yeah. kilogram cake, so it would serve a lot of children for not too much money, but it doesn't taste nice. So I went for the version that's uh, still popular today, which is a slightly less rich pound mm. cake mixture. Uh, and then, of course, that glorious pink icing and yeah. the, the hundreds and thousands and, and the desiccated coconut. I actually didn't really expect this, but in Belgium, it's been the most uh, popular recipe from the <laughs> book. It. Because all the children just demand their parents to bake it because it looks so nice. Also, I think your recipe serves 12, which is, you know, that's heaven for a parent that you're you're making a cake in a nice big tray and you can cut it up into equal sections that's also really important for children so no one gets a bigger bit than anybody else yeah, exactly, um, and exactly. It, and it's super easy to make again yeah so it's super, e- super easy to make and children can help with the icing and yeah. and yeah that's i mean i thought it was important to keep yeah. in, in in with this with this idea of the tottenham cake having to serve a lot of people a lot of people that it yeah. had to be a big cake and then on the other hand when the recipes 
recipes, uh, when there's recipes in my book for things like rock cakes, that will be only recipes for making six. Because a rock cake is only really nice if you've just baked it. Yeah. Because it starts to lose its its flair soon after all the warmth. I can I can testify to that. My it was one of my grandma's um, throw together. She should make rock cakes and yeah, I get after about <laughs> the next day, they're not great. No. They dry out really they quickly. They dry out, yeah, become exactly. like rocks. So I well, took into account is so so people can actually, you know, choose to double the recipe them. if they want to, yeah. but I gave them smaller recipes for bakes that I think don't really keep very well. Yeah. Was was there any um recipes in there that you particularly fell in love with that you that you you know you found and you were like, Oh my god, this is like my new favorite recipe? Or well, what I, was your favorite recipe out of the book? Well, they're all my children. I mean, it, I, I, oh. I adore them all. I really do oh. adore them all. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's always hard to choose one because I, I do have my favorites. I really do love uh, Bakewell tarts. It's, it's yeah, fantastic, it's it's, especially the one in my book, which is still made with breadcrumbs rather than a frangipan okay. filling. It's super interesting. And it, the, the texture is much nicer. Uh, yeah. So that's definitely one uh, to try. And also the history behind it, because in my first book, Pride and Pudding, I talk about the history of the Bakewell pudding. And now yeah, this, I, this... I kind of just closed the circle talking about Bakewell oh, tart. Great. So I love that. But my yeah. biggest um, discovery uh, that I'm most excited about is the clap cake, which comes from Cumbria, which isn't a cake, but a oh. A, a, a crisp bread like you would only associate it with uh, Scandinavia. It's made with oats and it's baked very shortly. It's rolled out very thinly and it it is just glorious. It's the bread of Cumbria in wow. times when they couldn't get wheat flour to actually bake a bread that have, would have a rise, they would yeah. bake these clap cakes and dry them in front of the fire on clap cake maidens, which were little benches made especially oh, for these so they could be dried out, so they could bake them in large quantities and then just keep them for a really long while, which is what exactly what yeah. they would do in Scandinavia when they made crisp bread. So so that was really excited because, of course, the climate in, in, in the north of England and in Scandinavia is not that different in the yeah, oat culture and oat as well. Um, and it's just delicious. I just, I bake it like once a month and I'll have it in my cupboard for a month. Well, usually they don't last that long because my husband likes them <laughs> as well. Them. <laughs> and they're just What so, do you have it with cheese? Or you have it, it, yeah, you have it with, you, you can have it with cheese, with jam, with, with uh, chocolate spread. Um, it would just, you know, with, with, like you would eat bread basically. Yeah. Or you could just use them for snacking, like, you know, just next to you on, on the computer, just snack on on this oat crisp bread which is actually really good for you as well so it's just delicious and especially with things like blue cheese like stilton is just glorious i love it (laughs) and and i think that's the one i'm i make most often because it's something that is is eaten like a bread so it just it it makes that i love the fact that i've i've literally never heard of it and and now that you've said it, I'm going to, because I've got the book here, I'm going to go away and make it. Exactly. And um, there's still yeah. oats in the shops in the UK, so much, I've heard. Yeah. So you can still, you can still make this, even yeah. if though, if you can't bake any bread, you can still bake clap bread because yeah. there's plenty of oats. <laughs> I think we're all right. I think things are starting to gradually, because um, I have to go out now and again to get things for recipe testing and 
gradually things are starting to get back to normal so yeah. that is that's encouraging but um thank you so much for coming to talk to us today it's been fascinating so again the book's called oats in the north wheat from the south the history of british bacon savory and sweet and it's out now because i think your publication party was meant to be last week was yes, it? yeah. was, no, it's all right we can have another one when, I, I when all this so. is over i really do I hope so i was having it at borough market and the exact yeah. same place where i had my oh. pride and pudding book launch and i was looking forward to seeing everyone and yeah. it's just you know you 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 create this book and the the book launch party yeah. is what you live to to you know you you yeah. it's like the, it's the, like the end it's, it's like, like the, the olympics the end, for, it? yeah. you know like <laughs> for sporty people it's the olympics and for authors it's the book launch because yeah. that's the moment you actually live and work yeah. for for all this time when you're working on a book well please do still have one and i'll come and give you a big hug when we're oh, allowed to fantastic. Hug each um so that's out now to buy i think um we are going to be allowed to put some of your recipes online so people yes. can on the olive magazine website so people can come and check them out um but you they can also follow you at um miss foodwise is that right on instagram yes. it's uh, um, miss foodwise on instagram but it's my 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 name regular is a win on on mm. twitter cool. and i've Brilliant. also got a facebook page yeah so check all of those out but thank you so much again for coming regular it was delightful thank you so much for inviting me so that was this week's podcast if you want to explore more of our back catalogue of almost 200 episodes you'll find us on all the main podcast platforms and on our website olivemagazine.com where you'll also find tons of useful recipes including some of the bakes we talked about in this episode and some great cooking advice and if you're finding it difficult to get your monthly mag why not become a temporary subscriber you will get the next three copies of Olive Magazine delivered to your door for a single payment of £12.50, saving 15% off the usual shop price, with free delivery and there's no obligation to continue after the three months. To take advantage, go to buysubscriptions.com forward slash allpod, that's O-L-P-O-D 3. Stay safe and we'll see you next week when we'll have a brand new episode to listen to. 